Hey friends, when we first meet David in the pages of Scripture, he is not all that impressive. His name means beloved, but the way he is first described makes him seem anything but. He is overlooked. He is an eighth son where seven with seven awesome older brothers. He is an afterthought in his own family. He is an underdog. He is a shepherd, which is the worst job in the entire family. He is a nobody that nobody noticed. And he's just a kid, an adolescent. And while he is a decent singer and decent at playing the strings, um, he gets moved up to the court of King Saul, which seems like a major job improvement. But if you really read the pages of scripture, like the second time David is in Saul's court, Saul doesn't even remember who he is or remember his name. He's even overlooked after he gets promoted. But there is something very unique about David, even as a young man. The Bible's phrase for it is that he is a man after God's own heart. We might say that he has a different or unique perspective. Or connection with God. His way of looking at and connecting with God is somehow different than what anybody else in these stories has going on. Now, when David was a teenager in Israel, his country was in the throes of a series of skirmishes and battles against the neighboring nation of Philistia. Have you ever called someone a Philistine? Philistine. I'm really torn with this word because I feel like I'm insulting anyone whose name is Phyllis if I say Philist <laughs> Philistia, and I feel like I'm insulting anyone whose last name is Stein if I say Philistine. So if you're either one of those, sincere apologies. I'm going to say it a lot today. In this neighboring country of Philistia, there was a lot better situation going on economically, socially, than what was going on in Israel. In general, the Philistines were a little more refined and well-to-do than the Israelites. There was more farming going on in Israel. There was more international sea trade going on with the Philistines. There was more old-school technology going on in Israel. Think farming, hoeing, yokes of oxen. There was more new technology, this was 3,000 years ago, mind you, uh, going on in Philistia. Iron, forging, bronze, metalwork. These guys had the latest and greatest implements, tools, armor, weapons, put the Israelites to shame. They were the wealthier, upper-class neighbors. Catch the picture I'm painting here? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, the armies of these two neighboring countries are about to enter into one of these skirmishes. And the way 3,000 years ago folks did battle is a lot different than how modern warfare goes. They each sent up a huge uh, army encampment on the top of a hill. And in between their two respective hills, uh, this place still exists, there's about a three-quarter mile long valley with a low spot in the center. 
And ideally, at some point, everybody would get their acts together and they would maybe even have a little skirmish in the valley and then retreat back up to their respective hills. But that's the scene that is going on. Two, maybe, maybe 10,000 aside, say, just for uh, estimation's sake, armies encamped on adjacent hilltops. But the Philistines had a secret weapon. What was not secret was their superior chariots, their superior swords, their superior spears. Everybody knew that. But their secret weapon was this individual named Goliath. And every morning and every evening, Goliath would walk out from the top of his country's camp, walk down to the bottom of the valley, lift up his voice, and yell at the Israelite army on their hilltop. And here is what he said. If it's in yellow, it's yours to read. I'm making you guys the bad guys, okay? You're Goliath. It's not on me. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and... Okay, hold on. I mentioned he was a really bad guy, right? And he's nine foot tall, so... Really loud. Kids, if you want to cup your hands, you can... From the top. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. He's a bad, bad man. So every day, Goliath screams half a mile up the hill, and 10,000 soldiers can hear him. This guy's got a big voice. Here's the deal, people. Let's not fight 10,000 against 10,000. Let's go winner take all. Just send somebody down, and whoever wins, wins it all. This is also generally not how we do things these days, right? We call this single combat, classically. Winner take all. This is Game of Thrones style, if you watch that show. This is Pokemon style, if you play Pokemon, right? It's just one guy going after another. And Goliath, he's like the young Muhammad Ali. You know, brash and confident. He knows he's going to win because nobody's ever beaten him. Humanly speaking, this guy is undefeatable. So while all this is going on, and the Bible says it goes on for 40 days and 40 nights, which just means it's going on for a long time. And if you're camped on one of those hills, you're thinking, when are we ever going to do something? All that happens is the big guy comes out and yells, and you're like, we're all too scared. Nothing's ever going to happen here. While this is going on, the armies are just idling day after day. Nobody is going to fight this guy. And David's older brothers are part of the Israelite army. And David's dad elects David to drive the official Israeli food truck day after day. He gets promoted from shepherd to food truck driver. Okay, this is a promotion. Um, the Bible says very clearly, David was to bring his brothers loaves of bread and raisins and wheels of cheese. I love that detail. Wheels of cheese David was bringing to his brothers encamped on that hilltop. 
Now, one of these days, when David was running the food trolley back and forth, he happened to arrive just as Goliath was doing his daily spiel. And he wonders, what, what is going on? So we continue with the story. This time, you all are going to be the Israelites. Okay? You're moving up in the world? Now, the Israelites had been saying this. Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. I love some of the details in the Bible. So, so far in David's life, he has not been given a line in the drama of any of these stories. David has not yet spoken yet in the pages of the Bible. But after David hears the taunts of Goliath, and after David hears what's going on, he finally gets his first line in this play. And David says this. Can I get the text back up? There we go. David asked the men standing near him, What? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There's two really significant things in David's response. In the second sentence, you hear his indignity for the honor of God. Like, who is this guy that he can insult God and God's people? We can't allow, we can't stand for this. But the first thing out of his mouth is really utterly humanizing. Lest we promote David to instant spiritual hero. His first thing is, what? What's going to happen again? Tell me that again. What's going to happen? Like the king's going to give him his beautiful princess to marry and a whole pile of money and no taxes for life? What? Like that's the first thing out of David's mouth. So lest we think him too spiritually la-la, like this guy knows the game and is an opportunist, okay? And he is super concerned about the honor of God. Those are two sides of the coin that is David, future king of Israel. Now, after David utters these sentences, his big brother, his oldest brother, Eliab, uh, re-enters the scene. So we are going to pick up the story here, and now you all are going to be Dave, David's big brother. You keep improving every time. <laughs> so when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with a man about these things... He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Is this like your family? Like This is a great oldest brother, youngest brother moment. So David is just getting some momentum going. You're working into like, all right, somebody's got to fight this guy. And wow, that's a lot that the king's promising. And his oldest brother is like, you are supposed to be watching the sheep. When you're not watching the sheep, you're supposed to be bringing me cheese. How dare you even talk about this stuff? It's pretty nasty, 
Okay? We know from an earlier chapter, Eliab is huge. He's tall. He's strong. He's good looking. He's picking on his little brother again. But he is not just insulting him in this moment. He is trying to humiliate and emasculate David in front of the Israelite army. He is going out of his way to crush him and put him in his place. Now, I am a youngest child and a youngest brother. In the past, when siblings treated me sort of like this, oh, <laughs> like those are fighting words. Like if Eliab was my big brother, he would be going down, right? Notice what David does, though. David, this man after God's own heart, not a perfect man. Now, what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Don't I have the right to open my mouth? And then he turned away from his oldest brother, turned away to someone else, and brought up the very same matter, and the men answered him as before. David, in this moment, shows remarkable restraint and self-control and virtue, if I can go that far. We do see in him something that is incredibly noble in this moment because when one of us is confronted with somebody being a jerk toward us or presenting us with anger or unfair treatment or injustice, everything within our nature wants to give it right back. And David absorbs his brother's anger and does this. So can you guys tell me what's actually going on here? And this, in the context of this story, though David is not perfect, is a remarkable illustration of being a person after God's own heart. Because with all the trouble of the world, with all the grief, with all the uncertainties of this life, God does not put himself in a posture to simply fight us back because we have sin. But he turns away from our sin. He absorbs our sin and tries to get all of us to move on with him to something better. Friends, sometime this week, sometime will be, someone will be a jerk to you. Sometime this week, someone will be angry and unfair to you. And we will all face a moment like this. And by God's grace, you'll remember this moment and find a way to absorb and move on. Now, David is having this conversation. I think it's a conversation that nobody else in the whole Israelite army had the chutzpah to have. Right? It's this young kid, this adolescent, who has the courage to have this conversation. So the story continues. What David said, this remarkable conversation, was overheard and then reported to King Saul. So King Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, me, the kid, will go and fight him. You are now promoted to king of Israel, people. And then Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Yes, I'm a shepherd. 
But when a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. This is awesome. Your servant has killed both a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, here's the reason, because he has defied the armies of the living God and the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So to sum up this conversation, it's something like this. King Saul says, Hey, you can't do it, laddie. And David says, I can! And King Saul heaves a giant sigh of relief because finally there's someone to do this. Which comes out as, God bless you, but really means, I would never do this. Good luck. Now, in this moment, David demonstrates remarkable courage and trust in the hand of God. You notice that he talks about what he has done to wild animals, but when it comes down to why he's going to win this particular battle, why he believes this deep down to his toes, it is not because of his own skill. It is because the Lord has rescued him in the past, and the Lord will be faithful and rescue him again. Again, friends, there is going to be some time this week where you face a situation where you think, how am I going to make it out of this? I'm stuck. If you're in deeper trouble, you may think, I'm, there's no way. I'm paralyzed. This trouble is too deep. This pit is too dark. And when that thought comes across the screen of your spirit, Lord willing, you will remember David, the man after God's own heart, who relied and calls on God's faithfulness again and again. And if you don't get an answer soon, keep praying, how long, O Lord, how long until you come through to, for me? Because I've got nothing else. David, in this moment, also demonstrates what I think is a, a holy and attractive naivete. If you are a young person today, like, God bless you. Uh, maybe it's because of just being young. Maybe it's because of the way God works. God gives, I think, more visions and crazy dreams and extraordinary exploits to do to change the world and to do for his name than those of us who grow a little older. Like, our imaginations get a little worse, I, I hate to say. I mean, the Holy Spirit can do anything but I'm getting dumber by the day, okay? If you're a young person here today, maybe God is starting to whisper something in your ear that seems utterly crazy and too big to be possible. But if you hear a whisper, with God, all things are possible. Um, my wife Sarah and I got married when we were 19, I like to say all these years later that we were just dumb enough to make it work, right? It's not that we had it figured out that we're still married. It's just because we were young and naive and had this dream, and we've been pursuing it ever since. 
When I was 19 years old with several friends, I was part of starting a church. We had no idea what we were doing. No idea. Did I mention we had no idea what we were doing? <laughs> 25 years later, this church still exists and is doing great good. And it's not because we were geniuses. It's just that like God gave us a dream and we had this holy and blessed naivete to keep at it for a few years and then to figure out how to hand it off to some more young people. So please, if you're 12 years old today, if you're 18 years old today, if you're 24 year, years old today, very possibly, I'm 100% sure of it, that within this room, the Holy Spirit right now is whispering things that only you can be the partner and companion with God's Spirit to do. So if that's you, come on. It would be easy here at the end of this sermon to now make a point about taking on your giants. But in the end, um, I don't think that's why this particular story is in the Bible. I mean, we all do have giant problems to face. No doubt about that. We could muse about how David was an underdog, a young person facing long odds, and we're all facing long odds, at least in some situation in our life right now. Totally true. But what I want, you, want to leave you with today is what I think God found in David's young heart all those years ago. And it's, I think at the end of the day, a matter of perspective. See, when everyone else looked at that Philistine army and looked up at this nine-foot-tall giant, like that was their perspective, and they couldn't achieve a vision that extended beyond this massive man and his massive army. But David alone was able to achieve a godly perspective that saw over and beyond and past to something infinitely greater and better and stronger. In short, David saw the presence of God. And the presence of God makes even a nine-foot dude look like a very tiny person. There is um, a book about art criticism called The Vision and the Vow by a man named Peter Grieg. And he tells about a particular painting by an Italian Renaissance master named Filippino Lippi. Not the most famous painter ever, but uh, this man Lippi has uh, great works in museums all around the world. One of Lippi's paintings, um, is in London's National Gallery. Uh, it's from the 15th century. It classically depicts uh, the Virgin Mary holding uh, a young Christ child, and she is flanked by two saints, Dominic and Saint Jerome. Okay? Now, this, this is in, right, London's National Museum. It's a great work of art, but this particular painting has always been, well, harangued by art critics. Okay? On a particular day, an art critic named Robert Cumming went to look at this painting. And when he first looked at it, here was his opinion. The hills in the background behind Mary and Jesus 
seemed exaggerated and wobbly, as if they might topple out of the frame at any moment onto the floor of the gallery. The two saints on the sides of Mary and Jesus looked awkward and uncomfortable in their posture. This was his first observation. But then it struck this particular art critic, Robert Cumming, that maybe he had his perspective wrong because this painting of Mary and Jesus was not meant to hang at eye level in a gallery, right? This is how we look at paintings. They're hung for, you know, like a five-foot-eight person or whatever, average height person, to look straight at the painting. It occurred to him that this painting originally hung in a church and beyond that was in a little prayer alcove. So he thought, huh, I wondered what this would look like if instead of standing up, as we do in art galleries, if I got down on my knees and looked at it. And he had a revelation in this moment that all these years and all these art critics have been looking at this painting from the wrong perspective. We've been looking at it at eye level, but until you get down low and on your knees and in a position of prayer, you can't see the genius of what was there. Once this English art critic, Robert Cumming, got down on his knees, I'm going to quote directly here, he saw what generations of art critics had missed. He found himself gazing up at a perfectly proportioned piece of art. The foreground had moved naturally to the background, and the saints now seemed settled and devoted rather than awkward. Like the painting itself, they had been uh, shaded by grace. Mary now looked intently and kindly, directly at him, the viewer, as he knelt at Jesus' feet between these two saints, Dominic and Jerome. It was not the perspective of the painting, the art that had been wrong all these years. It was the perspective of everyone looking at it. And it took this one man, Robert Cumming, on bended knee to see the beauty of what was really there. Now, this is a parable, friends, right? This is exactly what David experienced. No one else in the Israelite army was able to see the situation for what it actually was. It took somebody after God's own heart, somebody willing to be small enough and simple enough to get on their knees and to see past the veneer of what appears to be right there, to see the truth of God's reality. Three people in the story are described as big. Goliath, he's really big. Eliab, David's older brother, is described as really tall and really big. And King Saul himself, we know, is really tall and really big. The Bible never says David is really tall. Maybe he was. I think the writer goes out of the way not to tell us that he was, because it's only because David is willing to be humble enough and small enough to get on his knees to experience the heart of God that he's able to see what's what. Now there is going to come a moment this week in your life where exactly the right thing to do is to get on your knees. It's probably a moment where you're going to want to flex or raise your voice, or get up on your tiptoes, or, or stick your chest out. And I'm not trying to hurt your confidence, right? There's moments where we have to do all those things, but the first thing that we do 
is we make ourselves small so that God can be great in our life and in our church and in our circumstances and in whatever situation or trouble faces us. Maybe you learned some new details about the story of David and Goliath today. That's great. But this is the moment to remember, brothers and sisters, this shift in perspective in which we kneel and we acknowledge the one who is greater than every army, every weapon, every man, woman, the one who is Lord of all, King of kings, King of angel armies. And the wise disciple of Christ keeps kneeling, keeps pleading, keeps praying, keeps depending, keeps leaning, keeps asking. Real strength, brothers and sisters, is found in this perspective that keeps us in our place and keep God in his and his alone. Amen. You pray with me. Lord, we are small and you are great. We have big troubles. You hold salvation. We can only see day to day and even at our best, the span of a human life. God, you see and hold all times and eternity in your hand. And because you are great, we humbly now in this hour, God, simply say, we love you, we need you, thank you for reaching out to us, thank you that mystery of mysteries, you even have affection for us. Help us to have the courage and wisdom to keep leaning on your strength, O oh God, in Jesus' name.